Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thank you for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. As you know, geographically, these cases have been concentrated in a handful of areas. There have been cases in many states around the country, but you can see here clearly some states that are disproportionately represented, including Florida, which is why Dr. Goodnow has a lot of experience to draw on to share with you today. The good news about this epidemic is that it does appear to be on the wane. This is the case count data on the CDC website. It was current as of the time that these slides were submitted. You can, of course, access this information information in near real time on the CDC's website, but you can see that after that peak in the summer, cases have really begun to decline. That is good. However, I always note for folks that when pandemics go into decline, that is the time to really continue to redouble the prevention efforts to continue that down. We don't want to end up in a situation where we get complacent because things began to decline and then see another surge in cases. A little bit about the demographics of the MPOX outbreak. It is vastly disproportionately impacted men. The overwhelming majority of these cases have been in men, in the cases for whom that data is available. And there has definitely been a disproportionate impact among racial and ethnic minorities compared to whites. So this is the racial and ethnic information for the cases where that was reported to CDC. And you can see that blacks are significantly disproportionately represented compared to their share of the population. We also know that for the cases where we have this information, in most of the cases, there was some report of recent male-to-male sexual contact in about 70% of the cases, but in 20% of the cases, that was not true. And so while male-to-male sexual contact is an important risk factor, there are a sizable minority of these cases that do not have that risk factor. And so there are other issues that are at play here that also need to be understood. One thing that we know for sure that has been, I think, an important finding in the MPOX outbreak is that there's a lot of overlap between patients who are diagnosed with MPOX and people who either have HIV or have had a recent sexually transmitted infection. That is incredibly important and actionable information for all clinicians because it means that we both need to prioritize people with HIV and sexually transmitted infections for monkeypox vaccination because we know they are at high risk. And it also means that any time we are testing someone for MPOX, we also need to concurrently test for sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. So a very, very important management tip here that it's important for the treating team, including the pharmacists on that treating team to know about, to remember to get that testing done in all cases. MPOX is, of course, not a new disease, and so a lot is known about how this particular virus spreads. And there are multiple routes of transmission. The predominant mode of spread is through direct contact with an infectious, either a rash or a scab or body fluid. There are less common but important routes of transmission through respiratory secretions, not 
airborne transmission per se, but mostly during prolonged close intimate contact with respiratory secretions. It can be transmitted via inanimate objects like linens that have been contaminated and also through the placenta. So there is a risk for uh, maternal fetal transmission of MPOX. Important to note that there's a fairly long transmissibility period in MPOX because patients are infectious from once any symptom begins. So that is including the prodromal symptoms which come before the rash and they remain infectious until all of the lesions scab over and fall off. So it's a fairly long infectious period for MPOX, which is of course very, very different from a lot of the respiratory viral infections where that infectious period may be only say 14 days. With MPOX, it can be much longer, over a month in some of these cases. What do we know about the spread during this particular outbreak. And I think it's important to emphasize that this outbreak is, of course, a little bit different from some of the past MPOX outbreaks that have been mostly zoonotic in nature, right? The one in 2003, which was primarily driven by some of the animal exposures. In this outbreak, we know that there is a predominance of transmission during sexual contact. However, spread is not limited to sexual contact. And I think that is really important to remind people. Spread can occur through skin-to-skin -skin contact. Yes, it can happen during sex. However, there are other risks. So anytime there is close skin-to-skin -skin contact, it poses the risk for monkeypox transmission. Fortunately, there are some populations where we have not seen large number of cases. And I think what's of probably special interest to this group is we have not seen large numbers of cases among healthcare personnel. And that is definitely definitely reassuring. We have not seen a lot of transmission within healthcare facilities. And so the protective steps that healthcare personnel are taking appear to be quite effective in protecting them against MPOX transmission. We are not seeing sustained spread outside of men who have sex with men networks, so that is good. However, we know that that population, those MSM networks, are a really important focus of our outreach, our educational efforts. There have not been reports of sustained spread in congregate care settings. There was a lot of concern, particularly about colleges, about jails. We have not seen that, and so that has definitely been encouraging. No matter what, as this slide emphasizes, always important to continue to emphasize the infection prevention recommendations. We don't want to see sustained spread in these other settings, and the only way we're going to prevent that from happening is being on top of infection prevention recommendations. Which are summarized here, I'm focusing on the infection prevention and control considerations for healthcare because that's the setting where all of us are active. When you have a patient with MPOX, important for that patient to be in a private room with their own bathroom if possible. It does not have to be a negative pressure room. So we don't have special air handling requirements for the rooms where those patients are housed if they have to be admitted to your hospital, unless that patient is going to undergo some sort of a respiratory procedure like a bronchoscopy. So those respiratory procedures do need to be done in an airborne isolation room. All healthcare personnel who enter the room of a patient with MPOX should don personal protective equipment. What we recommend is a gown, gloves, eye protection, and we do recommend a particulate respirator for interactions with patients who have MPOX. Again, there's not a large risk of respiratory transmission, but it is a risk. And so we do recommend an N95 or higher, some sort of particulate respirator for all healthcare personnel who are carrying 
caring for patients with MPOX. There's a description in the literature of the classic illness presentation. I'm gonna share a little bit though about the way this outbreak is manifesting because the clinical manifestations are a little bit different in this outbreak, but the classic is an incubation period of about five to 13 days. So a little bit longer than what we are so accustomed to and talking about with incubation with COVID. There is a prodrome as there are with so many of these viral illnesses, very, very nonspecific, right? Any kind of typical viral prodrome, this can look like influenza, it can look like acute HIV infection. And the rash usually appears after the prodrome starts. Something that's really important to remember is that the patient who is presenting with MPOX, and Vanessa can probably speak in much more detail to this, a lot of these patients, when they encounter astute clinicians, they are diagnosed before they ever have a rash, which is perfect, right? You want to diagnose this early. It's really important to remember that that initial presentation is not going to be a rash. It's going to be this vague prodromal illness. So if you see someone who has risk factors and has this symptom complex, important to think monkeypox, think about testing for monkeypox. So challenging right now because this prodrome could be mpox, it could be COVID, it could be RSV, it could be flu. So there is a very, very broad differential, but in the right patient, really important to keep MPOX on that differential. The rash, there are all these classical descriptions of the rash, but I think what I have heard from clinicians is that there's a lot of variability in the way that rash can look, especially when patients present, if they present early in their illness. So yes, classically pox viruses present with a vesicular rash. It's usually diffuse, it's disseminated palms and soles, but the rash is really can have protein manifestations. So really kind of any rash should raise your suspicion for monkeypox in the right patient. The duration, typically two to four weeks, so a fairly long duration of illness. Here's some pictures. There are a lot of pictures on the CDC website. These are kind of the classic symptoms, but I would point you to the CDC website because there are some nice pictures of some of the less classic presentations. So if you're looking at a patient and you want to know, could this rash be MPOX? Go to the website and look. There's some really nice images there that can help guide you. In this current outbreak, some of the things that have been noted is that rather than being diffuse, the rash can often be localized and it may localize in different areas of the body over different times. So you may have these waves of rashes. We are seeing a lot of onset of rash in mucosal areas, which of course makes sense when you think about the predominant route of transmission, the major risks of exposure, particularly among male-to-male -male sexual contact. So there have been rashes in the urethra, proctitis has been described, oropharyngitis. So very important to do a careful exam of the mucous membranes or to ask people about pain in mucous membranes because the rash may be limited to those settings, which of course you may not see just looking at the patient. The prodrome doesn't occur in every single patient, so there are some people who present for the first time with the rash without having had the prodromal illness. These are some nice pictures of some of the mucosal lesions. I will note that anogenital lesions are very, very common. So important to really think about that, ask about symptoms, do a physical exam. As you can see in these case series, about 70% of the patients who had a rash did have anogenital lesions. There are some uncommon manifestations of MPOX. These are, of course, important to keep in the back of your mind because in a patient who's in a hospital who deteriorates in any one of these ways, this could be part of the MPOX illness. So it's important to be aware of this and to be ready to diagnose to respond to this. So ophthalmic, neurologic, cardiovascular, rheumatologic complications, all of these have been reported. So important to keep these in mind as you're caring for a patient. Fortunately, they are rare, but they certainly do 
occur. Another rare complication or manifestation is severe MPOX illness, and CDC in September issued a health alert notice about this because there were reports, important reports, of some of these severe manifestations of MPOX illness. They occur uncommonly. Less than 1% of all of the cases that have been reported have severe disease, but these are obviously very important because these are the sickest of the patients and they need special care. And there are a number of different severe manifestations. So you can have patients who have very, very large numbers of rash lesions, which can be very, very painful. There are patients who have had multiple organ system involvement. Some of these patients have had underlying comorbidities, but you, know, you can see pulmonary, neurologic, cardiac, complications. There have been reports of obstructive lesions, especially in the bowel. So that's definitely something to keep in mind in a patient who is hospitalized. And also issues with patients who have had stricture and scar formation, a big issue with the urethral rash lesion. So that can be a severe illness. And also important to remember that, you know, these patients, because they have compromised skin integrity with this rash, especially if it's on a large surface area of the body, they are at very high risk for bacterial and fungal infections. So you may see someone who gets ill, starts to get better, deteriorates again, important to think about a super infection, either of the rash lesions themselves or a systemic, a bacteremia or a fungemia. You'll hear a lot more about the treatment options and delivery, both complications and solutions to some of those challenges from Vanessa, but there is a drug that is available through an NIH-sponsored clinical trial. Ticoverimat, or TPOX, is FDA-approved for smallpox, and it's available through an investigational new drug protocol from CDC through this NIH trial. So it is available for treatment for MPOX, even though it does not have an FDA-approved indication for MPOX. There are some other drugs that are potentially useful. We do have to note that there is currently no human data on their effectiveness against MPOX. We may get some through the course of this outbreak, but these include the vaccinia immune globulin, cytofovir, and brincytofovir. Again, no human data, but these are options, and especially I know in some of the severe cases, people are doing some combination therapy with some of these agents. There is guidance that is available for the use of Ticoverimat in patients who have MPOX, and there are kind of three domains when you want to consider the use of this agent. So anyone who has severe disease, people who have sensitive anatomic lesions because it hastens the resolution of those lesions, which can be very painful, anyone who is at risk, high risk for severe disease, so especially immunocompromised patients, pediatric, pregnant patients, and people who have things like atopic dermatitis or eczema where they have compromised skin integrity, and we know this from experience with smallpox as well, they are at very high risk for severe manifestations from the dermatologic illness. There are, of course, two vaccines that are available against MPOX. We are predominantly using the Genios vaccine here in the United States because it is currently approved for the prevention of MPOX in addition to being approved for smallpox prevention. So that's the main one that they're using. There is another one that's available, but it's not being used very much. Most of you probably know there are two routes of administration. There is both the traditional intramuscular route, and there is also, during this outbreak, an intradermal route has also been approved, and that's a way also to extend the supply of the vaccine. Less of an issue now that we have more supply and less demand and need for the vaccine, 
because of the waning of the epidemic. But it is important that we do have this strategy so that if we see another surge, we know we have a way to extend the supply of the vaccine through this intradermal vaccination. In terms of strategies, there's a number of different approaches that we're taking with the vaccine. And again, this is, I think, less challenging than it was previously because supplies have expanded, meaning that we can vaccinate a larger number of people. But post-exposure prophylaxis was definitely a strategy. It remains a really important strategy and something that we continue to emphasize. So anyone who has had a known or presumed exposure to someone with monkeypox should be vaccinated as post-exposure prophylaxis, ideally that should be done within four days of that contact. So really important for this messaging to go out, for people to know that if you've been exposed, there is an option for you, but you need to seek care within four days so that we can vaccinate you for post-exposure prophylaxis. There's another option that's called a PEP++, so post-exposure prophylaxis plus plus, and that refers to using the vaccine in situations where there's not a known exposure, but someone's had high-risk sexual contact with someone who's at high risk for monkeypox. So there's an increased likelihood that that person might develop monkeypox, and so that is another good indication for post-exposure prophylaxis. There's also, of course, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So there you can see there's a long list here of patient populations who were at high risk for exposure to monkeypox. So it's very important to counsel those patients when you see them, let them know, hey, you are at high risk. Our recommendation is that you get vaccinated, this pre-exposure prophylaxis. And there's a nice list here of those people, patients that are at very high risk. So important to have a flag in your EHR, good awareness among your providers so that as you see these people in your clinics, make sure that they are aware that they could qualify for a pre-exposure prophylaxis and encourage them to get vaccinated. This is just a nice illustration of the different places where you can give the intradermal vaccine for MPOX and some pictures of people doing that. Number of doses have been given. There are over a million doses of vaccine have been administered. You can see both first and second doses are illustrated in this graph here. And I think, you know, the most important thing for people to know, aside from how many doses have been given, is that the vaccine has definitely been effective. So among persons who have gotten vaccinated, their case rates are 14-fold lower than people who didn't get vaccinated. And that includes people who just got one dose. So the the vaccine is extremely effective in protecting people from monkeypox illness. And that is definitely something that we want people to know. We have a vaccine. It's a really effective vaccine, and we encourage you to get it. So a few closing thoughts before I turn things over to Vanessa. So important to remember, think monkeypox, right? In the right patient, even if the illness is vague, the symptoms are vague, think about monkeypox test, but also test for HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. Remember those severe manifestations, very important for those of us who are in hospital settings, taking care of hospitalized patients to really have those in mind. And of course, if you suspect monkeypox, be in touch with your state and local health department. They can help you arrange testing, help you arrange the therapeutics as well. If you have immunocompromised patients, that is the group that we really do encourage treatment with a ticoviramat as early as possible to prevent potential complications. And in patients who are having severe disease, very low threshold for using multiple different treatment modalities. Again, there's not 
a lot of established data on the effectiveness of that approach, but experts who are taking care of these patients have said that that is a reasonable thing to do. Obviously, in anyone with HIV, you want to maximize immune function, so get them on antiretroviral therapy. Make sure they are virally suppressed because that's really important as well. And I'll close just by mentioning that there is a clinical consultation line available at CDC. So there are clinicians who are available through health departments 24 hours a day, lots of different things that they can help with. They have a wealth of experience. And so there's both an email for non-urgent requests and a phone number that you can call for urgent clinical consultations as well. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basilica from ASHP Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.